Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Back to the Texas Killing Fields, Season 3, Episode 11, The Tourniquet Killer, Anthony Allen Shore. So, you know, when you look at the area known as the Texas Killing Fields, um, and then kind of blending that up into the Houston area, you start to realize just how much serial killer activity was happening in the Houston area and then outside of Houston into the uh, southeast Houston area that we kind of consider that Texas Killing Fields area. And with doing that, um, one of the things that we noticed was there were cases that were mentioned like early on and then kind of taken off. And um, so we started and when you say taken off, it was taken off like our timeline. Yeah. Or the, you know, like, Didn't so they mentioned mm -hmm. in the, um, articles about the Texas killing fields and they mentioned like a cold case that, you know, they thought was connected to the Texas killing field area and could be a possibility. And then it would kind of disappear and the next publication wouldn't have that. So, you know, when we were first doing that research, we just figured that some of those had kind of dropped off, you know, that maybe they just didn't get mentioned the next time. And I think partly that was kind of with that false premise that we had read that none of the Texas Killing Fields murders had been solved. But what you actually come back and start to look at is that as these cases were solved, they were kind of then taken back off and it wasn't talked about kind of as the same way they're associated with other people. And so with these cases that we're going to talk about today, some of them had kind of been looked at by those um, task force looking into the possibility of cases that were connected. And so these cases occasionally would get brought up. Mm -hmm. um, and then as they eventually got solved, you know, then they don't get brought up anymore. In fact, like when we were discussing this episode and how it was going to lay out, I was like, I feel like we've done this before. Right. Like, but it's possible somebody else has also done this, mm -hmm. you know, so it's true to what you're saying is, you know, it just all seems so real and comes together and, you know, it's talked about, but also drops off because it's part of something bigger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As they get, as cases get solved and get associated to one killer or another killer, they tend to drop off. Um, but it does give you that idea about how vast the serial killing in this area was happening. You know, how, how much was going on. It's a scary, scary number that you keep kind of delving into cases and seeing that. And sometimes when I think about that, too, like how many people were active, mm -hmm. you know, air quotes active at the time. Sometimes it, the numbers seem so big, but you're surprised they're not bigger. Right. You know, with considering 
they all have different MOs, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the way this starts is on August 14th, 1995, a man who made no attempt to disguise his voice telephoned the KPRC television tip line and talked about a serial killer being on the loose. The anonymous caller implied that he was the killer, and he said that the body of a girl could be found in a remote field off of Interstate 45 and Ritchie Road. He said that the victim's name was Ruby, and then he gave her birth date as May 11th. When investigator follow, investigators followed the clues that evening, they found the body of a nude 16-year-old girl who had died of ligature or tourniquet-style strangulation. So, which, um, what what you're talking about is the difference between manual strangulation, which would be somebody using their hands, and then um, somebody using something like cloth or rope or something like that to use as a manual a tourniquet style strangulation Mm -hmm. so this was um like a um piece of of cloth had been used the caller had provided the victim's correct birth date but had given the name of her best friend Police identified the victim as Dana Sanchez, who had vanished eight days earlier after calling her boyfriend from a payphone on the 600 block of Calcade and telling him that she was going to hitchhike to his house on Green Yard Road. So this really starts investigators looking into um, the telephone call, him using that term serial killer, and um what other cases he could possibly be involved in. Mm-hmm. So um, the tie really comes from the phone call that there were other cases out there that needed to be looked at. So investigators um, actually identified two other cases. The first case was that of Diana Roblar, who was a nine-year-old abducted about 11.30 a.m. on August 7, 1994, on her way home after running an errand for her mother to a convenience store on 6,600 North Main. Her new body was filed that afternoon in, behind a vacant office building on North Loop. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled by ligature strangulation. And when we're talking about these addresses, these are all in the Houston uh, area. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't say that earlier, but just to. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about that. So, yeah. So this is all in Houston. Um, and then the next case that they tied to it was the case of Maria del Carmen Estrada, 21-year-old, who was abducted while walking from her apartment at the 7200 Shadyville on the morning of April 16, 1992, at 6.30 p.m. She was walking to catch a bus to her janitorial job. Maria was um, was definitely kind of a younger Hispanic small statured woman so she would have looked like a like a teenager Mm -hmm. you know like a relatively young individual her body was found a few hours later about one block north of her apartment at the Dairy Queen drive-through area on Westview she was partly closed and she also had died of ligature strangulation So Harris County, which is Houston, but Harris County Sheriff's Detective Bert Diaz noted that these three victims were young, Hispanic, small statue, 
stature and all were missing clothes. Also that each had been inducted on the um, county's north side on a public street in broad daylight and had died of ligature strangulation. So that's the connection they're making together. So it would be years before any of these cases would be solved and it would come to light kind of in a completely unexpected way. So although there was DNA found under Maria's fingernails and a profile was made, it was not matched to anyone until the Harris County DNA lab was shut down for an audit and samples were sent to another lab. So interestingly enough, this whole debacle with the Harris County DNA uh, laboratory has actually come up on um, many other podcasts. Um, is responsible for basically the overturning of um, some wrongful convictions. And um, so what happens there is that they go in and audit that lab um, basically because there, there were really some pretty bad things going on there. One, well, and I'm sure somewhere along the line somebody's complained or brought up something and then if multiple people have that same concern, right. then you can't ignore so many. Right. right. And so. in 1999, there was an overturned conviction, which mm -hmm. kind of started to lead this ball rolling. But basically the, the DNA analysts were not trained properly. And so they were testifying to things that they were not actually trained to do. And they were making DNA comparisons that were, Okay, well, let's be honest. They were fraudulent. Mm. So, um, you know, I mean, basically detectives were coming in and saying, this is who we're looking at. And they were getting them to testify, oh, well, that's who it is. Mm -hmm. Without the proper, yeah, for one, training and mm -hmm. paperwork. So, yeah. so it, was, it was shut down. And when it was shut down, the sample for Maria's case was actually transferred to another lab. And that's what happens in this. That lab then matches that kit, um, the DNA to a man named Anthony Allen Shore. So who was Anthony Allen Shore? Anthony Allen Shore was born in Rapid City, South Dakota. His parents were both in the military and his family, which included two sisters, moved around quite often. Life was not easy for the shore kids. Um, the parents would fight a lot. This was not a healthy relationship um, between um, his mother and father. And so, but then finally the family did settle, settle in League City, Texas, which we've talked quite about bit about League City, Texas, because that is where Calder Road and the Texas Killing Field. Right. It's kind of... Right, not only that, but just like in the middle of it. Right, it's right smack dab in the mm -hmm. middle of the Texas Killing Fields. So they they settled there, and um, Anthony Allen Shore actually attended high school in League City, and then Shore's parents divorced in 1976. So he's settled in this area. As a teenager, he was accused of harming the neighbor's cats, harassing female schoolmates, um, he was also known to um, have basically sexually assaulted or molested his sister's friends. Yeah. Um, so there were certainly quite a few accusations about um, young Anthony. 
but things seemed to be turning around for him in 1983. Outside of Houston, he actually married a woman named George. I'm sorry, Gina Worley, and they had two daughter, daughters together. Shore fancied himself a musician, but it did not pay much. So he worked as a tow truck driver, a telephone repairman, and he worked his way up the telephone company working in sale in the sales office. He also moonlighted as a musician, and everyone in the neighborhood loved him. They called him Telephone Tony, and he would host parties at his house with his band St. Virtuous, so they'd have dance parties and, and different things going on there. Um, what, what kind of brings it to light when you look at what he was doing as a telephone repairman, he would have been very familiar with these areas. Mm-hmm. So if you think of going in and um, into a lot of these back alleys and repairing um the telephone lines and you know into open fields he knew the areas where very well um known in the neighborhood too so but you're not suspicious necessarily of somebody who's kind of the telephone repairman if you look outside and you see him you're thinking okay well he's out there repairing the telephone lines yeah and certainly things are different now because you know when you're dealing with um certain public services these days i think they're doing a lot more background checks they're looking into a lot more things to be eligible for the job then it just wasn't something looked at so you know even if you have somebody that's had a trouble history or whatever you might not necessarily know that as a company but then you're also allowing him like plenty of access to everyday family life right into some homes so yeah no um, and so it always kind of makes me wonder, even though we have a history of what what we find out later that he's involved in, it kind of gives you pause where you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if something else, you know, if there were things that aren't connected to him. But um, he and his wife separated, and he actually kept his daughters with him. He was physically and emotionally abusive, not allowing the girls to shower more than once a week. Um, They lived in squalor, a roach-infested house. Um, The daughters later said that he tried to smother them with a pillow. And as they grew up, he began sexually assaulting both girls. It was a few years later that he sent the girls to visit his mother and sister in California. That They noticed right away that the girls were not being treated right. So they made the move to keep the girls with them. When the girls disclosed about sexual abuse, they actually took the very brave step of contacting the authorities, even though they knew that it would mean putting their son and brother in jail. Mm-hmm. Good um, for them. Yeah, I mean... You know, there there are definitely people out there who would not do the same thing, but mm-hmm. you have to really think that what they did led to finally getting a hold of him. Mm-hmm. So he was arrested for molesting his daughters in 1999, and he was convicted of indecent abuse on a child and given probation. Hmm. He was then ordered to give a DNA sample as a registered sex offender, and his DNA sample was eventually the DNA that connected, was collected from the body of Maria, and he was arrested for the murders in 2003. 
So in order to kind of connect some of this, you have to go back a little bit. So when he's arrested for the murders in 2003, he does then give a confession. So, and what he says is in 1996, he was 24 years old, living in Houston with his wife and young daughter, and that he claimed he saw Lori Tremblay walking. And so he started talking to her and he asked, she he said that she asked him for a cigarette and he began to give her rides in his light colored Cadillac Cimarron to school. And she would leave early each day so the two could spend time together, ride around, get kolaches. He claims that later this relationship turned sexual. And Shore said that one day then she started refusing rides for him. You know, something I find odd about that statement is they would ride around and get kolaches. You know, you can't get kolaches after like 12 p.m. Right. So I'm thinking maybe They're like early morning rides then, right? right. Mm-hmm. He's giving her those rides to school, stopping by, getting kolaches. But when I look at this, like this is his whole story about how like he had kind of this relationship with her and it started out as just a friendship and then it kind of turned sexual. And then she started refusing having rides with him. No. He was grooming mm-hmm. her. And then know? when he tried to make it fast, she wasn't having it. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she was, I would assume, you know, had some fear of him mm-hmm. by that time. You know, that, that something was happening. And or it didn't just feel right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like Especially something. for somebody that young. Right. So I'm sure that this was scary. And we're also talking about a time when it was much harder to you didn't hear as much back then counselors weren't talking to kids about this type of thing and saying hey you can go here if this is happening to you so her ability to like have those conversations would have been completely difficult so she was um in order for her to get to school she had to catch the metro bus to take her to her school downtown she attended the hope center for youth where she was enrolled in special education classes so again this is somebody who i think he targeted mm-hmm. um her mother said that it was h-i-s-d that had promised to provide transportation for her daughter but they never did so she had to take two public buses to school and she also had to walk several blocks to the bus stop um and again, you know, timing sometimes is everything on this. What we know nowadays is how much danger that was really putting her in. Um, but then on September 26, 1986, it was misting outside. So he asked her if she wanted a rock and she accepted. He said that it started to get out of hand um, basically when he's trying to take her bra off and she kept asking um her him not to and then she freaked out and he said he strangled her with a cotton cord that the cord broke and he had to do it again he ended up hurting his hand while strangling her with the cord and then he said he drove around for a while before he um broke behind nifa's mexican restaurant and just pushed her out of the car 
he later noticed that one of her shoes um, was in the car and he actually threw her shoe out too. He was very worried that he was going to get caught. Surely someone saw him giving her rides and would call the police and run his prints and would catch him. But what also is kind of interesting about this is that you find out later that somebody did see him. Um, they just, because of the way that this all kind of went down, one of the workers at the restaurant actually kind of saw the car pull up, you know, saw the individual in the car and then later came out and discovered that the body was there. So that person was able to kind of describe the car a little bit, but didn't actually see him push her out of the car. Um, but I think that as far as it goes for Anthony, um, sure. I think he knew that he had been spotted. And so that was kind of part of the um, whole thing is that he was, you know, panicked that he had been seen. And, um, and in that panic kind of makes these promises to himself. He says that he's not going to do it again. Um, and, you know, he's kind of a changed person, but what we do know is that he does, um, he does do it again because his other victims were actually after this. Um, but we also know that there was one other victim. He broke into the home of a 14 year old girl and sexually assaulted her, but she survived. So kind of what's, you know, he doesn't confess to, to anything else. So we don't really have a whole lot else um, to tie him to, but what's, what's interesting here is I would almost think that there are more of them like of him breaking into homes because he got very brazen at the point that he does this, you know, you wonder, but we do know his DNA is in the system. And so he hasn't been tied that way. Mm -hmm. um, so Shore would go on trial on October 18th, 2004 for the murder of Maria so it's actually Kelly Siegler. And so if you're kind of a true crime fan, you're probably familiar with Kelly Siegler. She does the um, television show Cold Justice. She was the prosecuting attorney for Harris County for many, many years. We love her. And so it was at that point that she was the prosecuting attorney. And um, she was the one who was in charge of her of Shore's trial. Um so Siegler made the decision to only try him for the murder of Maria. And the reason why is that's where she had the strongest physical evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can. We talk about it a lot, though. Sometimes we're like, how come they went on trial for this one and not that one? It's right. Because if they were to get off, then maybe you could try for the other one. Right. And that's always, mm -hmm. you know, the right. I mean, you know, if you go for all of it and that muddies the water and he gets, he goes free, you don't have anything else that you can use. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, from, from these perspectives, you have to look at the strongest case. This case was a death penalty case too. So even though, you know, you may not be giving families closure in these other cases, you see the reasons that that they do that and they did have the confession so these families did know what happened to I would also think and I really don't know how that always works but I would think they discuss it with all families involved right and so I would hope so yeah I, I mean, think I, in I think by 2004 yes you would have had a victims mm -hmm. rights act at that point in time so then you know 
as much as it may hurt or suck a lot, it's mm-hmm. kind of the greater good kind of sacrifice, I think, if you know that's what yeah. they're doing, right? If you're fully aware that they're just like, hey, we're not trying to combine them all together just in case. Right. You know? And, it, you know, it it looks easy with these confessions that maybe it would have been, you know, he's confessed. So why can't you take the confession? But the problem with the confession is you have to have some other corroborating evidence with that. And they they did somewhat because they had a few different things there, but what's your strongest possibility? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, this, this turned out right because they put him on trial for the capital murder. Um, his attorney was a guy named Gerald Borco, who actually claimed that Shore was in was not innocent of murdering Maria, but that he could not be found uh, guilty of capital murder because in order to commit capital murder, he had to be committing another mur- another crime at the time and the state could not prove that maria had been sexually assaulted therefore he felt like you could not convict on the capital murder Hmm. the jury disagreed with that they deliberated for only an hour and convicted him it was a couple months it was a month later on november 15th 2004 when he was sentenced to death so sure would die by lethal injection on january 18th 2018 so, you know, like when I saw this at the end of the episode, uh, I would think by 2018, right? I'm pretty aware of like media and uh-huh. all these things going on. For some reason, I just don't remember this in the media. Do you happen to remember that happening? Because, I mean, it's an execution. Right. So, you know, there was some sort of media on that. I mean, do you personally remember? Because I, I don't. I don't personally remember mm-hmm. that. I don't actually personally remember seeing much about it. Um, I'm sure, you know. I mean, it's just been one of those that maybe didn't get the public attention or it was just quiet. I, I mean, I think it crazy, was, you know? I think it was quick and, and kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in doing the research, the only thing that kind of that I've seen is that none of his family attended that. Um you know, and I would think that for them, they've already made their peace with kind of what's happening there. You know, um, his daughter's been interviewed many, many times over, you know, what happened to her and, and, um, and there, she's made some very strong, um, interviews out there. And so for people who have interest in these, in this case, there's a lot of information out there on him. Mm -hmm. For our purposes, what we were really looking at is, does he possibly connect to anything else? In looking at the cases, there were a few cases that I really looked at to try to see whether or not, you know, he could be closely related because he's been named as a possibility in some other cases. The problem with some of them was they've also been named in possibilities of other people, too. Oh, Gretchen, so where are we going next? I have no idea. <laughs> well, I think what we're looking for at this point in time is suggestions from our listeners. If there's something out there that we haven't covered that you think that we should cover, send us um, an email or contact us on our Facebook account. Um, we're trying to wrap up this season. Right. And I just 
haven't decided on what the next couple of episodes are going to be to do that. So we're leaving it out there for any of you that might have suggestions. That's right. And, you know, we really just want to emphasize if anybody has any piggybacking to go on with the Texas Killing Fields, I think this might be... This might be their last opportunity. Yeah, that we cover it. Right. You know, um, we've reached out to a lot of people. We've gotten some feedback. We've covered it all. Um, but in fact, Gretchen, we have big news to announce. Yeah, so we have been spending a lot of time uh, getting our next season ready, which will be season four for us. And we are actually leaving Texas with that season. Can't believe it, but I'm excited for it. Yeah, I'm excited for it too. And what we will be bringing next season is just one case. Mm -hmm. And so it, the entire season is going to be devoted to focusing on one case. So we have been trying to get as much information and documents that we possibly can to bring you that case and also doing some interviews uh, for that case. And so that's been kind of where our focus has been. And that's why we're kind of putting it out to our listeners to give us suggestions over the next couple of episodes for this season, anything that they would like to see mm -hmm. us cover. Yeah. Even if it's just like the possibility that we overlook something or, uh, you know, maybe a case that you'd like to see brought to life or something that can be quickly covered we definitely yeah or you know, there were updates in a in a mm -hmm. case that we've covered previously that maybe you wanted us to relook at you know contact us on facebook or send us an email because we have about a couple more episodes left in this season um in the outline for this season mm -hmm. and so that's that's where we're uh trying to decide what to do and then yeah we're moving out of state yeah we are we're packing our it's bags and heading, but it's um it's well deserved i yeah. think you know i mean it's time to kind of broaden our horizons a little bit uh to do something different it's gonna be exciting well and i think we've always wanted to focus on just one case mm -hmm. and so this is giving us the opportunity to do that you know? i agree with that because i think when we originally started um like our idea for this we kind of thought like we were going to do the texas killing fields but it became something way bigger than right. we even imagined right and so um it's going to be nice to get back to where we wanted to be yeah and so that's kind of what we're working on but we do have a few more episodes that we can cover on this season so if you have some suggestions and we'll give you a call out you know thanks for joining us today we always love to hear from our listeners, so please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.